Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron at Barron Public Affairs, and thank you for joining us at the intersection of policy, politics, economics, and demography. Today's topic, the revolution is real, the populist policy takeover. Joining me as always, Johnny Fluger. Great to be here, Jonathan. Great to have you, and Jeremy Furchgott. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So as our listeners may recall, in Episode 7 of our podcast series, we explored the topic of There Will Be Blood, America's antitrust reform movement. And in that episode, we posited a hypothesis that there was a rising wave of antitrust reform zeal that was beginning to deeply affect the American political system. We saw this emanating through various channels, and we felt as if something important was unfolding. For an example of this sentiment, I would point to remarks that President Biden delivered when he signed the executive order on competition. Forty years ago, we chose the wrong path, in my view, following the misguided philosophy of people like Robert Bork and pull back on enforcing laws to promote competition. We are now 40 years into the experiment of letting giant corporations accumulate more and more power. And what have we gotten from it? Less growth, weakened investment, fewer small businesses. Too many Americans who feel left behind. Too many people who are poorer than their parents. I believe the experiment failed. President Biden's comments are significant, not just specific to the narrow issue of antitrust, but in reflecting a broader populist wave that in previous years has, I think, affected the trade debate quite substantially, likely will affect the corporate tax debate going forward, and as we speak, we would argue, really is reshaping antitrust enforcement as well as statutory reform, meaning legislation in Congress. But a question came up, and this question came from friends of the podcast, clients and others. How do we know that this hypothesis about populist sentiment, this idea that populists are gaining a greater hold of the policymaking process is true? How can we determine on a more objective, even quantitative basis that what we detect on the surface is happening at a deeper level? And so we went and designed an experiment to explore the hypothesis, to see were we right, were we wrong, what are the contours, what are the details of this emerging populist movement, and we applied that experiment specifically to the question of antitrust. So as I mentioned, today's episode, which is episode 10, which we're very proud of and very happy that you're all with us for our 10th episode in this series, is really an extension of that episode 7 and some of the prior comments. But today we're going to explore the hypothesis, not just as a theory, but is it borne out in reality? And I want to turn to you, Jeremy, for a description, some insight into how we designed this experiment and how we executed it. Thank you, Jonathan. We used influencer analytics to test our hypothesis. There's a lot of knowledge about who the policymakers are. Nobody needs to hire Barron Public Affairs to tell them who the policymakers are. What's a lot less clear is who is behind the policymakers, who are they speaking to, who are they listening to, who do they care about. Here's what we did. We defined a universe of about 150 government officials who matter on antitrust policy. For the most part, these were at the federal level. We looked at members of Congress. We looked at executive branch officials. We also looked at a few state-level officials, attorneys general from key states. And from this universe of 150 government officials involved in antitrust policy, we looked at what they are saying on antitrust, and in particular, who do they cite as authorities on antitrust? 
We built a database of over 12,000 citations on antitrust, and we recorded all instances of officials citing an individual institution on antitrust. That gave us a picture of which authorities seem to be most influential with policymakers. So, Jeremy, just to be clear for our audience, we are capturing for this universe of 150 government officials. Every time one of those officials cites an expert or other individual when talking about antitrust, we captured that citation in a database. Exactly. Let's say, Jonathan, you're a member of Congress and you retweet Johnny, the world's greatest expert on antitrust, and say, check out at J.M. Pfluger's latest comments. That would be an example of a citation. Or let's say you're giving a speech and you were to mention a book that Johnny Pfluger wrote. We would capture that as a citation. Great. So we have over 10,000 of these citations, in fact, over 12,000 of these citations. That gives us a picture of who is being directly cited by policymakers. Then we repeat the whole process by looking at who the influencers are citing. So we gather another 10,000 plus citations, and we end up with a picture of who is being cited by those who are being cited by policymakers. In other words, who is really moving the needle on antitrust policy thinking. And this enabled us to quantitatively test our hypothesis about where the trajectory of antitrust policy thought seems to be heading. You got officials being influenced by people, and the question is who is influencing those people? And what are those patterns of influence? What are the identities of those individuals who are influencing the influencers tell us about the broader debate? And Jeremy, I think it's important to note two things. First, this is not the first time we've done this. That's right. It's the first time that we've done this on this particular topic at this time with this group. But this methodology is one that we're very familiar with, very comfortable with. And for those in our audience who like organic, natural processes, this is not an automated collection process, right? This is hand-collected, hand-crafted data. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then we apply algorithms that we've developed that look for various patterns in the data and uh, gives us a lot of confidence in the results. And Jeremy, once we apply the algorithm to this database and we distill it, what's left? What is at the end of the process? What we end up with is a list of influencers. So we'll be telling you in this podcast about our top 10 policy super influencers. And this process gives us confidence that our top 10 are people who truly matter. They do not appear in our data set by chance. And this gives us confidence that what we're seeing is truly important. So that's the process that we used. We applied it to antitrust, which we see as this very, very important venue, this very, very important facet of the populist policy debate. And I want to turn to you, Johnny, as our resident antitrust expert, someone who's thought a lot about populism and populism applied to American domestic policy, and just to walk our audience through our top-level findings before we get into the identities and the backgrounds and the views of some of the super-influencers. Jonathan, I think there are three big takeaways from the list of influencers that this analysis generated. The first is that, to paraphrase President Biden, the era of Robert Bork is in eclipse. We see that eight of 10 super influencers are in favor of revision to the consumer welfare standard associated with the late Judge Bork or outright rejection of that standard. So. 80% of the top 10 people who are influencing the debate on antitrust today represent 
a massive deviation from the law and economics community that has, I think, disproportionately affected antitrust over the last 40 years as conceptualized here in D.C. That would be point number one. Point number two, in contrast to other analyses we have done, such as of the Biden transition about 18 months ago, the conversation around antitrust is extremely, extremely, extremely concentrated. I think 2% of the authorities cited represent something like 45% of influence on the entire conversation. We've never seen anything like this. The third point would be that the debate on antitrust is dominated by individuals who are on the left politically. There's only one individual in our super influencer list who is affiliated with the Republican Party, with the right. And we believe that this reflects a lack of moral confidence even more acutely by conservatives, Republicans, name your categorization of individuals on the right in the traditional laissez-faire attitude toward antitrust that's prevailed for the last 40 years. The progressives, especially the so-called hipster antitrust community, which we explored in Podcast 7, is really driving the debate and everybody else is following, especially people who are maybe a little less ideological on the left and folks on the right are following as well in their wake. And Johnny, when you think about the top 10 policy expert super influencers, whom we'll review a few of them in a moment, it's just notable the absence of law and economics figures, of folks on the right who had very impressive credentials, who as economists, as technocrats, dominated the debate for some decades. And now they're really almost nowhere to be found based on our analysis. What does that tell us about the broader domestic policy conversation and what's unfolding? I think the law and economics community is identified by many people in the opinion community in Washington as a avowedly libertarian project. And I think not just a right of center project, not just a Republican project, but a libertarian project. And I think, as we saw with the ascendancy of candidate Donald J. Trump and President Trump in 2016, libertarianism is on the outs within the policy conversation. I mean, there are aspects of libertarianism that were successful in influencing the Trump administration on issues like criminal justice reform. But overall, the trend on the right has been toward industrialism, nationalism, populist economic policy beyond just industrialism. And I don't think the premises of libertarianism are well-suited to the parameters of so much of the political debate today. I want to be clear, I'm not being normatively dismissive of this or that aspect of libertarianism, but I think the opinion-forming class in Washington is just concerned with other things than those which libertarians are concerned about. And we see this playing out in applied politics. And so I think, you know, classic public affairs strategy is, you know, you've got a company that's a cream cheese company, and they decide they want to increase cream cheese consumption. They want to figure out how the government can assist them in promoting increased cream cheese consumption. So they propose that the U.S. government subsidize the coating of Pluto in cream cheese. And they commission an economic study that shows that when you run the model, which they build, that in fact, this is a huge, you know, economic stimulus and, you know, more than pays for itself. 
itself. And so said company shows up on Capitol Hill with their economic study, which has the name of some you know, Nobel Prize winner on the cover. And traditionally, members of Congress, by and large, would just say, wow, yeah, that's really impressive work. And if it's on this piece of paper with this name, it must be true. And so, you know, yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. That approach, which I've obviously caricatured here for effect, but I think there's a lot to that, no longer resonates the way it once did. And Johnny, as someone who's been involved yourself with many economic studies at the firm, none focusing on cream cheese, sadly. Yes, very sadly. (laughs) Sadly. Just talk a little bit about that shift. I think economists are not held in the same regard by a prospective public affairs audience that they were held in previously. I think part of that has to do with the view of the role of economists in paving the way for the financial crisis and then responding to the financial crisis, pushing 15 years ago. That conversation has occurred on the left, and we got into that a little bit in Podcast 7, where we discussed the hipster antitrust community's bone to pick with neoliberal elites within the Democratic Party, many of whom are economics inflected. And I would say a good example on that on the right was a piece that about a decade ago, the Harvard government professor Harvey Mansfield wrote in the Weekly Standard, questioning the the whole project of economics as practiced in Washington. So I think part of the challenge the law and economics community has faced is not just the discontinuity between some of their interests and the interests of the political order right now, but also the overall recession and standing of economics as a discipline. I think that's true of elite economists advising elected officials on fiscal policy and monetary policy, they don't seem to have the same standing they had even 10 years ago. And I think part of the challenge as well, Jonathan, there's been so much scrutiny of the outside commissioned work of economists that there is a sense among many, including the people we've studied as part of this exercise, that an economist is always doing the bidding of some sort of corporate interest, and you cannot really count on them for some sort of objectivity. I think, Jonathan, these are some of the factors accounting for the diminishment of economic... I mean, it's... When we look at our list, there are still two economists on the list. It's not as if the economists have disappeared totally. They're still active, but they don't have the, it seems, the same degree of influence that they had previously. I want to make one clarification. We have been studying antitrust from the perspective of the political and policy conversation around antitrust. This is not a study of the authority cited by federal judges who are active on antitrust. This is not an analysis of the jurisprudence around antitrust. This is an analysis of the political conversation that will shape, ultimately, the legal actions implicated by antitrust statute. And we think that, in general, legal activity is a lagging indicator of what's to come. So, Johnny, let's dive into our top 10 policy expert super influencer list. And it'd be, I think, terrific for you to highlight a few of these folks who are important to the conversation and are representative of different categories of influencers and super influencers. Sure, Jonathan. Our number one super influencer is Bill Kovacic, who is a law professor here in Washington at George Washington University. He was the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission chair at the end of the George W. Bush administration. It's notable that he is at the top of our list, given the absence of Republicans 
in slots two through 10. What's remarkable about him is that he is a very good source for reporters covering the TikTok of the antitrust conversation. But based on our analysis, he does not provide a strong normative perspective on his own. He's vigorous in portraying the trade-offs between maintaining more of a status quo perspective on antitrust and engaging in a more radical Brandeisian approach, but he never quite says which approach he himself prefers. And I think that makes him a great scholar as opposed to an advocate. And what that means is the one Republican on this list is not a full-throated defender of the consumer welfare standard upholding the Robert Bork legacy. He's actually quite a down-the-middle commentator on what's occurring. And Jeremy, talk a little bit about how the data speaks to this question of whom Republicans are citing, whom are they not citing, and what does that perhaps tell us about the broader policy debate and this influence of populism? We see that Republicans are not citing large right-of-center think tanks. We see that the patterns of citations are actually not that different if we were to compare Republican policymakers and Democratic policymakers. And I think, Jeremy, to that point, if you look at government officials, especially members of Congress, and you look at Republicans who are generally affiliated with the free market right, with the law and economics movement, what's so telling is even those people who were considered, again, really children of the law and economics community, they are not full-throated defenders of the consumer welfare standard in the current conversation. And this pattern is similar to what we've seen in other areas. When we looked at the energy sector, for example, when we looked at healthcare also, there was a similar asymmetry that revealed or forecasted the direction of the debate. The next super influencer I would flag, Jonathan, from our list of 10, I would encourage all our listeners to go to our website and encounter the full list of 10. Yes, there is a scintillating summary on our website of exactly this material. You can read about all, or see the list anyway, of all 10 uh, antitrust super influencers. The piece is titled Antitrust Super Influencers, dated spring 2022, available at barronpa.com in the library section. The second super influencer I would flag is Matt Stoller of the American Economic Liberties Project, formerly of the Open Markets Institute. And I would flag him because in the analysis we did of the Biden transition 18 months ago, he was one of the 10 people we identified as most influential. He's the overlap, the crossover between that list and this list. You see a concentration of power and control in the hands of a few. And this leads to uh, less community control over the retail and banking and credit decisions and commercial decisions. It leads to radical amounts of inequality, both economic in terms of income, wages, and wealth, and also mm -hmm. political corruption. It leads to uh, uh, less investment in productivity-enhancing technologies, less deployment of that. So you've seen productivity actually slow and even turn negative sometimes. Almost every single problem of American, uh, not politics, but political economy can be traced mm -hmm. to rising concentration. I think his ascendancy over the past five years speaks to the political interest 
in the populist perspective in a way that did not exist previously. And Johnny, he's a great example of someone who might be cited by a Republican policymaker or a Democratic policymaker. And so he's a great encapsulation of some of the broader patterns we've observed. Jeremy, yes, there are clear indications of Matt Stoller being influential on the right with younger conservative opinion leaders. I think he stands out in the hipster antitrust community for having an extremely strong following on the right that I think a lot of people looking at the antitrust debate from the outside likely discount. They don't appreciate the extent to which there has been a lot of resonance of this hipster antitrust activity among younger conservative types in Washington. And I would point out that if you're in the policy community or the corporate public affairs community or the investment community and you want to try to see the future of the antitrust debate, Matt Stoller is probably a very good person to consider as signaling, indicating where the debate is headed and what these coalitions in support of antitrust reform will look like. And his ability as someone on the left to forge alliances and relationships on the right, I think is quite revealing about the state of the political debate, the state of populism as a force in domestic policy, and what, again, the future likely holds on not just antitrust, but as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, on issues such as trade and corporate taxation. The third super influencer I want to highlight, Jonathan, is Stacey Mitchell, the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. She stands out on this list because I would say that she is not principally concerned with antitrust. She is a progressive thought leader and an activist in an even broader sense. And I think her advocacy has kind of bled into the antitrust conversation in a way that speaks to the centrality of, in particular, scrutiny of Amazon as part of the antitrust debate. She is, I would say, Amazon's leading antitrust critic, and she has held remarkably consistent positions over the last two-plus decades since she's been at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. There hasn't been any tacking or pivoting or shifting or PR shifts. She has held firm on her views, and the political environment that has become more populist has reoriented itself toward her rather than the other way around. I think that's a rare thing we see across all of the work we do in a lot of different areas. And it speaks to some extent to the decline in credibility of the expert class in Washington. I think as a result of a lot of things that we've talked about, people who are seen as flip-flopping, changing their mind, are now subject to a certain amount of disbelief. And someone who uh, is seen as implacably committed to a very focused, disciplined agenda has more standing right now. The roots of all of this can be traced to the 1980s when the antitrust agencies and the courts made radical changes to our antitrust policies. They abandoned the longstanding goals of these policies and instituted a new framework known as the consumer welfare standard. It sounds benign, but this approach has blinded and enfeebled antitrust enforcement. It has allowed, for example, large corporations to use their financial muscle to bankrupt smaller competitors and take market share without actually having to compete for it. One of the fascinating things about Stacey Mitchell is the lens she provides on the relationship between counterculture and big tech. 
her organization grew out of the counterculture of the 1970s. At the same time, there were organizations like the Whole Earth Catalog, whose leaders ended up as champions of big tech. So if we go back to Podcast 7 and our conversation about the internecine split on the left between neoliberals and progressives, what we see through the work of Stacey Mitchell is this very interesting internecine debate between these countercultural figures of the 1970s. Some of them became huge cheerleaders of the technology industry, and others, I think like Stacey Mitchell, have a more arguably originalist perspective in terms of the counterculture. Jordan, that's a terrific review of some of the key super influencers. And I think, again, looking at the group as a whole, this idea of this gathering coalition driven principally by left of center reformers, but having great impact on the right and this emerging consensus on constraining corporate power in various ways, especially but not only on antitrust. And I think the implications for the U.S. economy, for politics are quite profound and deep and likely long-lasting. I'd like to use this final segment of today's episode to explore those implications. The first is, I think that a lot of the coverage and conversation focuses, of course, on antitrust action against big tech. But as we see in these super influencers and the debate and legislative action, that's really only one dimension of antitrust reform. But as you've seen, Johnny, you've talked about in other settings, it's much broader. Yes, it extends to meatpacking, it extends to nonprofit healthcare, pharmacy benefits management, the alcohol industry. There's a clear breadth of interest as well as a hierarchy. And I think the way to understand the risks that a particular industry faces is to look at the extensive track record of the antitrust reformers on a particular topic. So much of what we've seen from the Federal Trade Commission under Chair Lena Khan has been forecasted by her decade of publications. I think it is emphatically not the case that the antitrust reformers are hiring a pollster and commissioning on a Monday a poll asking, which company should we go after? What industry should we target? And then deliberating internally in a front office setting and then deciding to shellac a particular company, a particular industry. There is a whole conceptualization and even, I would say, anthropology behind their prioritization of particular objectives. And it's important to understand that prioritization. It's not just the end result of typical political processes. Another implication that I think is revealed by the influencer analytics study we did on antitrust is the durability of antitrust reform and more broadly this populist wave. And the pattern of influence that was revealed in the data suggests that even under a Republican president or a GOP Congress, that the current trend is going to continue. Not perfectly and not without its ups and downs, but I think the trajectory over the next four, eight, 12, 16 years will increasingly be in this direction of anti-corporate policymaking, of anti-corporate reform, whether it's trade or taxes, or in this case, we're discussing antitrust. And so unlike previous eras where the election of Republicans provided almost instant and total relief, that's likely not to be the case with antitrust and similar such issues. A third implication that I think is 
worth considering is how now almost all debates in Washington are zero-sum moral clashes. It used to be in American politics, there were these big swaths of the political system that sort of disdained morality or excessive morality in shaping policy outcomes. So you had folks on the right and the sort of libertarian community very uncomfortable with those sort of morally driven debates that was seen as sort of the purview of the private sphere. And of course, on the left, not only the left, but parts of the left, this famous saying that you can't legislate morality. It seems now that on the left and the right, everybody wants to legislate morality, so to speak, all the time. And so again, it it gives these debates not the classic feel of economics, which is how to optimize for specific economic outcomes, but rather how to pursue moral ends that are not described easily, if at all, by economics and transcend economics. It's about things like power and fairness and other values that, again, aren't really captured by the economic language. And I think there's a prioritization of those ends, Jonathan, over and above efficiency. Efficiency is seen as helpful in some cases and in other cases destructive of human flourishing and well-being. And so many of the people we observe would prefer for our economy, I think, to be less efficient if the trade-off is broader prosperity. Jeremy, we can't have a conversation without thinking a little bit about China and how this shift in the conversation might impact policy approaches to the U.S.-China economic relationship. What are your thoughts on what this might mean for the continued durability of the bilateral trade relationship, and does it make it more vulnerable, less vulnerable, or not much of an impact? I think it's really unclear. There's this tension because U.S.-China competition is really primarily occurring in the commercial realm. And so on the one hand, there's the potential for large U.S. corporations to become political targets because they're seen as enabling an economic relationship that is helpful to the Chinese government and harmful to certain U.S. constituents. So there's political risk to U.S. companies from that point of view. On the other hand, if the United States wants to engage in competition with China, it's going to have to do so commercially. And so U.S. companies are going to have to play a role in that, and they're going to have to be able to outcompete Chinese companies either globally or at least in certain key parts of the world. And so for the United States to succeed in competition with China, it seems like there must be some role for large U.S. companies to be aligned with U.S. objectives. Now, whether that alignment between U.S. interests and large companies will occur as perceived by D.C. or whether U.S. companies will be seen as either a distraction or counterproductive to U.S. objectives It's really unclear where that's going to go in the next few years. Jeremy, thank you. Johnny, thank you for, once again, a terrific conversation. Thank you, Jonathan, for making me dream of covering Pluto and cream cheese. (laughs) Well, if I hadn't suggested it, you would have come come up with it on your own, I'm sure. Had I known that astronomy or astrophysics were so delicious, I might have chosen a different (laughs) career path. Well, as, as a former geoscientist, I wish I had something to say about covering planets with materials, but I don't. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Johnny. This conversation has no room for quantitative analysis. So in any event, I want to thank both of you. I want to thank our audience for joining us today. Again, I encourage all of you to go to our website, barrenpa.com, where you can read the brief in full. Please subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts and other such platforms. We appreciate your interest and look forward to having you join us for a future episode of The Political Risk Brief. 